Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the climate revolution. My name is Johan Berno, and I'm on a mission to shake things up. It is time we get serious and address this climate crisis. In each episode, I'll provide a platform for top climate thinkers, entrepreneurs, and investors to share their insights, innovations, and contrarian views. Let's learn from visionary thought leaders and hear their ideas that can profoundly reshape society and bring us one step closer to a sustainable world. In today's show, I'm receiving Timothée Parik, the king of degrowth. He's a doctor in economics at Lund University. He's a rising scholar who made a big splash at the European Commission Beyond Growth Conference. His book on degrowth has sold more than 35,000 copies. He's a brilliant guy and a true artist with words. We talk about why Timothy thinks climate tech VC and green growth are fairy tales. Degrowth as an alternative, what does that even mean? How to engage the top 10% and motivate them to embrace a new narrative? Whether a COVID scale catastrophe will be the triggering event of the 21st century for our system to move away from capitalism and why the well being economy should be our collective future. Let's go. Timothy, welcome to Climate Insiders. Good morning. How would your best friend finish the sentence? Timothy is. Dot, dot, dot. Ooh, well, I think my best friend would describe me as a, a as a lover of words. You know, in, in English, some would say like a, a, a wordsmith, not just a, a poet, like um, because my nerdy passion is for scientific writing. So this is not mm. even poetry or fiction or the kind of noble literature. It's the very nerdy science of how do we write, you know, logical arguments on, on paper. So I... All my life is really surrounding the act of reading and writing, which is really what I'm passionate about. And which I think in the same way that, uh, you know, a tree produces leaves, me as a human being, I produce text. This is that the, the kind of my basic function as I see it. I see. So you're a nerdy artist. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to turn scientists, uh, science as a more eccentric and entertaining activity that most people think it is. Nice. All right, so we're going to talk about a lot of things today, and I, I wanted to start uh, talking about a rumor that in mm. the media, <laughs> uh, producing more while polluting less is possible. Some people call it green growth, and you're saying that decoupling economic growth from environmental degradation is a fairy tale. I'll be honest, I come from the venture capital side. A lot of people listening come from that world uh, where financing startups that combat climate change and fueling decarbonization is the way to go. So right off the bat, do you think Climate Tech VC is BS? Uh, short answer is yes. And, but there's a lot of entangling to understand why. And very often, I think these micro-level or meso-level ventures, they are kind of relying on macroeconomic magic for these objectives to be achieved. So in the same way that we're like, oh, if we introduce these eco-innovation somehow, we hope that at the macroeconomic level, something is going to happen that is not happening at the micro economic level. I'll give you an example. Like We all understand that if you're running a company, an organization, even within your own household, if you want to produce more stuff, well, you need to mobilize more energy. You need to mobilize more materials. You need to invest very often more time and effort into producing that extra stuff. You know, that's everyone, like if you're an entrepreneur and you want to start a new company, you understand that that's just not going to happen magically. But Weirdly, at the macroeconomic level, these kind of temporal and biophysical constraints, they disappear. 
They disappear in this uh, Harry Potterian story of green growth, whereas we can all at each level of the of a society produce and consume more. But when you measure the biophysical weight of that economy, in total, it can be smaller. Theoretically, I don't know how that would function. The only thing that would allow that to happen is if you get uh, outrageous rates of eco-innovations that will, every single time you want to produce something extra, find a substitute to allow you not to use extra energy or materials. This has never been happening anywhere in the world. Of course, there is some kind of technological progress, but what matters is the speed at which we can find relevant substitutes. So not just general speed of technological progress, but just the day you need, for example, extra electricity to power a new generation of electric cars. You want that extra electricity to come, for example, from, I don't know, uh, efficiency gains in industrial symbiosis. So you have free electricity that's being freed by a better territorial organization. And oh, good, you can use that free electricity that you've just managed to liberate to power some cars. Then that's a freebie. But like, we don't see this happening. Most of the time, these kind of transition, they happen through accumulating. So if you want electric cars on top of your thermic cars, well, you will need to produce extra electricity and so you will need extra material infrastructure. And as an ecological economist, when I kind of take the weight of that total economy, you will see it being heavier. Right. So that's a Jevons paradox, right? So that efficiencies are just accumulating to the total consumption of electricity or energy, but not declining the, the previous use. But what, do you, what would you say to VCs or investors that believe in the holy grail of energy, for example, fusion, nuclear fusion? If we crack that, so we need to spend billions of dollars to fuel innovations so that we crack nuclear fusion, taking humanity in a whole chapter where it, it renders energy free and unlimited forever. Well, there's a timing issue. So when we're looking at sustainability problems, uh, including climate change, which is only one among many sustainability issues, we get specific deadlines. So, you know, IPCC is telling us basically if we want to uh, avoid catastrophic global warming, we need to phase out most of emissions in the coming seven years and then the rest between 2050. So whatever solutions you have to that, you, you need to make sure that that solution can uh, fit that kind of time constraint. And nuclear fusion is failing to meet that constraint for several reasons, just also because like the idea itself is not you know, technically you're ready. And then once you've kind of invented a new technology, you also need for that technology to exnovate existing infrastructure. If you build a nuclear power plant right now, that's going to operate for the next 40 years. You know, even if you discover a better technology in 10 mm. years, they're not going to deconstruct it and construct a new one. Like the same way we see for planes, where you buy a plane, you're going to use it until it's not usable because otherwise it's not cost effective. Same thing for a car. If you know you buy a car right now, a big thermic SUV, and next year the brand is launching the very same car you have, but so much you know less uh, fuel consuming, you're not going to just get rid of your car and buy the new one. No, you're going to use your car for the next 10, 20 years and then buy a new one. So there's this kind of delays that makes it very difficult to exnovate the nature-intensive uh, technologies and practices that we have today. So every time someone comes up with a new idea, it can be a solar plane, uh, it can be, you know, uh, lab-grown meat, 
can be carbon removal technologies, can be nuclear fusion. I'm like, I mean, why not? You know, humans are wonderful, inventive creatures, and we need for sure to invest in all kinds of solutions because at some point these might be relevant. But today for the big sustainability challenges we have today, these technologies, they're not the main levers uh, we should be investing our time and effort on. You've actually deep down said that you actually believe or you, you're in favor of green growth. You would like that to be real. Well, it, it, is it a total fallacy? I mean, it would make my job easier. Uh -huh. uh, you know, my main goal as an ecological economist is basically I want an economy's ecological footprint. So total ecological footprint, your use of water, soil, metal, biomass, minerals, your impact on water pollution, local air pollution, global air pollution, greenhouse gases emissions, e-waste emissions, you know, impact on biodiversity. I want all of that, what we call environmental pressures or total ecological footprint. I want this to remain within what we call planetary boundaries. We also call it biocapacity or the carrying capacities of ecosystems. So basically, when I look at a specific country or region of the world as a whole, I want footprint to be under biocapacity. In the same way that if you're a financiers and you look at a company you're invested in, you want uh, you know revenues to be higher than cost of operation, right? Otherwise, you're like you start to worry. You're like you're losing money, guys. You're losing money. At the macroeconomic level, we're losing money in, in the very biophysical sense, like we're operating our economies at an ecological cost, which means that they're in very long run, it is poses, poses like an existential threat to the very functioning of our, of our economies. So somehow, if you could tell me, oh, look, we can just reduce this total ecological footprint while growing, I'll be oh, that's kind of nice. Uh, if, if we had like right now, like, magical carbon removal technologies that would actually suck up all of the carbon out of the atmosphere, allowing us, giving us more like maneuvers to produce and consume more things. I'll be very happy uh, because that simplifies the problem. The problem is particularly uh, concerning because we don't have that, meaning that right now we have a, de a degrading situation for ecosystems uh, as a whole. The update of the Planetary Boundaries paper, which came out in 2009, was published a few weeks ago. And, you know, it's pretty depressing to look at, but like the situation is getting worse globally. Yeah. And the countries that have been the fastest in raising their national income, so things like Western uh, high capitalist countries that have very fast growing rates of GDP, Uh, they've not reduced their total ecological footprint. They've had a few successes here and there, but they are nowhere anything that should be called green growth. Uh, except, of course, if you just engage in some kind of greenwashing and just only look at just one color of the Rubik's cubes and be like, look, I've solved that problem. It's like, you've not solved that problem. You've gathered like three squares of yellow in one square of the color. You know, you need to have the nine of them on every single face. So I think even the fastest countries in the world right now, they're kind of, Look, I've decreased emissions for a few years here and there. I'm like, yeah, you did that during years of recession. What do you want, a gold star? Like, no, I mean, what we need is basically, this is a fast-paced race to, uh, some people call it carbon neutrality, that's only for one planetary boundaries, but nature neutrality. So being back within biocapacity. And we need to do this in these kind of high-income countries as fast as possible to create room of, uh, flexibility for the global south to do so and 
So, so far, that's just an empirical observation. It's just this kind of green growth that we wish we had. Like, it's not observable in the 1,000 studies that have been existing since the 1990. It's not observable. And the funny thing is actually that discourse, which scientifically today is non-existent. Like, you don't see papers where people arguing that green growth is happening. Like, now, even people doing these studies on decoupling, they're very cautious. There's a synthesis in the last IPCC report on decoupling, and you can read, I've I've made an analysis of it on my website. And it's actually very cautious. It's saying, like, we've been observing a few successes here and there, but nowhere near what we need. The discourse of green growth is surviving in kind of abstract organization, like the discourse of a big organization that they have been commissioned. So political agendas, national governments, also kind of wishful political agendas. Uh, France being a great example of being like, you know, we're leading the, the green transition where like all scientists are saying like it's not happening. And also in businesses. So in the tech industry where people just because they've invented like a small whatever robot that sucks plastic or a new pair of shoes made of recycled material, they kind of see this as a sign that somehow the economy could be made green. And so they elaborate this kind of like grand narrative that is also running against the, the science. Is it in developed countries? So I want to bounce back what you say is like, if we could make the economy, the growth greener for real, you would be in favor of this. And yet in developed countries, we've seen that economic growth is decorrelated from the quality of life, right? At this point, a further increase in economic growth leads to an increase in inequality between the rich and the poor, explosion of debt, financial stress, anxiety, depression. I mean, loss of meaning, rise of obesity, even more recently, a shortening of life expectancy. I mean, the proofs uh, are just uh, piling up. So clearly we've hit a ceiling. We need a different narrative. Uh, And yet a lot, the majority still argue that capitalism and GDP is the best we've got. So what would you tell them? How can we change profoundly that narrative? We have You're so right much that evidence. Even like the narrative of green growth is, is weird because why would you want to green something that is very abstract that is a quantity-based agitation indicator? Like even if you're an entrepreneur or an investor, you understand that like what you're looking at are projects. Projects are people that are going to collectively organize and mobilize some resources to solve a problem. That problem is always getting down to something very concrete. Uh, But at the macroeconomic level, we have this narrative where we're just focusing on the rate of acceleration of kind of the accumulation of, of financial added value, which is just very abstract. So yeah, I would be very much, uh, I would want to create a narrative where basically we consider growth as a temporary phase, just like it always is, is nature, including in Mm. our bodies. If you're just starting a company, uh, well, obviously you're going to grow in scale, maybe in number of employees, maybe in number of customers, maybe in total revenue. That growth though is not a defining objective of your company. The defining objective is you've identified an unsatisfied needs within a certain population and you found an innovative way of providing for that unsatisfied needs. And the scale, your revenue, your investment power, all of that is just a mean of achieving that social mission. And so for me, I would want us to focus on the mission and see growth as an intermediate means that we see in some high-income countries is not necessary anymore to achieve some of the objectives. So I think right now we're a bit distracted, you know, like 
by the guy pointing at the moon and we look at the finger. Well, we look at the finger of GDP and profit and income, whereas actually what matters is the social uh, mission shown by the moon. But just here, a little to, to realize that this narrative is much more niche that we think. If you take a country like France, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there are roughly like 4 million companies in, in France. Out of that, you get like 287 large corporations. So that's that's a few. Even if you take like the most advanced post-capitalist kind of uh, not-for-profit cooperatives, you have more. Like we have around like 1,400 of them as of today. Even if you take like, let's say, like, and out of those 4 million companies, I, more than 90% of them are just, you know, micro, micro-entreprise, you know, micro-company with a single person, which is not like huge, like for-profit corporations. No, it's just people running their business with specific connection to concrete needs. Same thing if you look at associations. So it's a legal status, just like association or just like businesses, except they start from the concrete satisfaction of the needs and they have a legal framework that prevent them from ever you know, appropriating money from that business. So you nobody can be rich from the activity of an association, which you could agree, which you could argue that mentality should be broadened to like entire sectors, which are so important for well-being, like health, elderly care, childcare, energy, that we should have actually have this mentality to protect them from speculation. We have 1.5 million associations in France. So it's so funny that even though these kind of like profit or perish narrative is only happening within a very few niche organization that we kind of feel this is like a very broad status quo applying everywhere. So I think what I'm trying to to show in my work is that within the economy, within real existing capitalism today, there are many post-capitalist modes of functioning that already exist and actually that are best fitted, more adapted to the ecological transition than these old for-profit dinosaurs that are still use like uh, indicators of performance and legal statuses, you know, that have been around for a long time and they are misfitted to our times. Right. And so it sounds crazy, but a smaller, slower economy can actually be a sweeter economy. Those are your words. I've actually witnessed that for myself, particularly strongly over the last three years, you know, post-COVID. Finding more meaning in little things, singing, playing like kids around the bonfire or uh, instead of purchasing, you know, something that triggers dopamine for one or two days. But again, uh, most people are going to say, prove it to me. You know, how real is this thing? You know, is this another hippie-ish kind of, you know, movement? So how is this going to make us happier or, or how is this going to, to crack or problem at scale? What I can easily show is that investing more and more time into work and the production of commodities and of the creation of GDP profits and income, at some point we'll hit what we call social limits to growth. As an individual, you know this. If every, let's say, year you increase your working time by, you know, 5 or 10%, or let's say even 3%, after some point you will reach burnout. It's just a matter of time. No one is Mm -hmm. a superhero. At some point, you know, no one can work more than 24 hours per day or even much less than that. So that kind of burnout 
limit also applies to an economy as a whole. So what we're sure of is that if we continue on the road of this kind of faster, exponentially growing economy, at some point we'll reach what some scholars call a social recession, where actually we will dedicate so much of our times and resources to just making stuff we can sell that we will have no time and energy left for everything else. Let it be politics, the arts, culture, the science, all the stuff that is not lucrative, but that is yet very important in terms of well-being. So if you apply that logic, and I think drawing from personal experience, when you reduce your working time, it doesn't mean you become like a couch potato and, and you become like a passive member of society all of a sudden. No, we understand that many of us, like when we reduce working time, we liberate available hours that we can use to do something cool, can be learning a new language, uh, can be spending more time with your kids, uh, can be, you know, helping some people that you can help, can be just volunteering. I mean, the entire associative economy is running on volunteer work and they're creating real value. I mean, go on and try to argue that even though it doesn't make much money or money at all, all 1.5 million association in France, you know, is creating enormous value. We recognize this. So I think that sweetness comes from the fact that by basically shrinking the amount of resources both ecological and human, that we give to this kind of capitalist for-profit economy, we're going to manage to enrich another side of life that you cannot measure with euros, but that is still determinant uh, for well-being. And on the proof, I mean, now empirical studies have been just raining, literally, like these last few years, like doing scenarios. And they all connect in showing that actually there's this kind of happy coincidence of shrinking the kind of activities that are very nature intensive. They have a lot of social co-benefits. You know, they have a lot of, of positive impact on health. For example, if we have less cars in cities, uh, mm. you reduce like noise pollution, you reduce air pollution, you reduce the probability of accidents. So you increase, uh, you know, bike uh, freedom and kids play freedom. You liberate uh, some kind of uh, land for, uh, you know, doing cultural activities or just rewilding and having like, uh, you know, uh, re, re-enriching ecosystem services. Mm-hmm. So that sweetness can also take very concrete forms. And one example I, I much like is, uh, you know, the like polluted water. Uh, I mean, we today in most places, we've been treating water streams, oceans, ponds, lakes, rivers as some kind of like, uh, uh, outflow for pollution. So we just, you know, throw every kind of waste in it because it's easy, then it floats away in nature and we forget about it. In doing so, we're losing something quite fantastic, which is, you know, water you could swim in, a, biodiver- a biodiversity uh, that that is just a very rich and, and useful in ecosystem services. And now we realize that, oh, wow, if we shrink these kind of industrial activities that pollute the water, then we regain something fantastic that we've been compensating for. I mean, the idea for someone like me living at the ocean coast, the idea of a swimming pool, I find it very strange, you know, Mm. but like, yeah, in a city where actually your water stream is so polluted that you cannot swim in it, then you develop all these kind of extra economic activities like swimming pools and you feel like you're creating value. But actually that value only exists because you polluted the river in the first place. If you remove the industrial activity that pollutes the river, then you don't need to have the swimming pool. You've canceled two economic activities. So GDP is going down big time. 
but you regain something free, which is the free access to swim in an unpolluted river, which is actually generating a lot of well-being, even though it generates money for no one. Okay, so going back, sort of pedaling a little bit, uh, we know there's a problem. Most people can testify, right, in their own lives. And yet they're stuck, right? They're stuck in the rat race. Uh, how can they afford to pay their bills? People are stuck in sort of the lower stages of the Maslow hierarchy. So who bears the responsibility to make that profound change? You know, how, is, how do you convince the top 10%, the top 1% that degrowth is a way to go? How do we make this an actual win so that it feels better, greater, fairer, like a winnable game for them? Here we have to be honest. Uh, it, it's not a win-win-win scenario. Uh, so first, like if the, you know, let's say elites to describe people that have access to powerful decision-making. So it can be political elites or business elites or even, you know, all kinds of elites. If these people were sensible to science and reason, you know, we would not be in the situation we are today. So I don't believe in actually just, I've been ch chatting with many of these people since I published the book. And, you know, you can lay the argument as clear and peda pedagogical as you want. Uh, that won't cut it. Mm -hmm. It never does, because then these people have a material interest in the continuation of these unsustainabilities. So you can just tell like the CEO of an advertising company that like, you know, ads for SUVs is really not what we need right now. Like that's just, that just makes the problem more complicated. And they're like, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm intelligent. I, you know, I went to university. I understand how this is making it worth. And actually, this is my business. So more than anyone, I know that my ads incite the consumption of these SUVs. That's why we make them. But you know what? I'm making money doing that. I am enriching my shareholders doing that. And so that's my legal obligation, a part of my for-profit company. And so even though I understand I do it. And these people, they usually give you this kind of my hands are tied, cannot do it. If I stop doing it, the competition is going to take it over. So there's a lot of, um, I think, misunderstanding of how power works in society going on. So what I would tell is, is a few things. Is first, like if you are at these decisions of, you know, powerful decision makers, it means you have more power than the average of people. So power is a relation. So these people, especially if you're a company operating in a high-income countries, you have already more power, you know, than a company operating in a, in a poorer country. If you have a very high like net wealth or income, you're more powerful than other people. So your responsibility is being defined also by uh, your position within uh, the spectrum of economic inequality. So I'm sick of hearing from top 10, top 20, top 30% people giving me that, uh, like, oh, my hands are tied. No, if you're, uh, you know, uh, an, an Indian farmer and you have literally no money to your name and your land is being degraded, you cannot even grow food anymore and you have a family to feed and you cannot move and you have no means of... Your, that's the definition of your hands are tight. Literally, you cannot do anything. That's the situation you're in. If you're sit, sitting on a few hundred grands of, of savings, uh, you have a high-weight paid job, you know, you have a shares here and there in companies, a few properties in high-income countries, like you're literally one of the most powerful actors in the world. So you cannot use the story of like, I don't have, my hands are tied. My second comment is about the role of the state. 
Um, unsustainability is a coordination problem. So these, they, you know, that's what I described in the book using a concept from Serge Latouche, uh, the economic banality of evil. I don't think it's the, you know, the CEO of a fossil extraction company or, you know, someone building highways or doing ads for SUVs is just some kind of villain that just want to just make the world a worse place. No, but we've constructed a system where actually uh, we create legitimation for these people. So for example, we're going to create a narrative of performance being like these people look, they work like 70 hours a week and they make a lot of money and they get rich fast and they and generate unicorns. That's right. Yeah, and we reward them for it. So what if we were to create a narrative where we reward people in terms of the well-being outcome of whatever they do? So forget about unicorns. Who cares about the market valuation of your company? What we care is about the well-being valuation of whatever solution you've found. If you've created a unicorn with something that you know solves no, no concrete needs issues, then like, uh, well, this should not be rewarded in any manner. Right. And so, so what's the, what's the plan? How do we collectively crack this? Meaning, do we need more people, influencers, superstars, athletes, who you know, football stars, singers, movie stars, to act like Leo DiCaprio and spread messages? Like, how how is what's the first domino that trickles the rest of the dominoes? The the first domino I would like to see is because it's a coordination problem. We need to act together. So it's like you know we're within an orchestra and like. We've taken little disequilibrium over there and now there's a few instruments that are playing so loud and the music is really getting crap. And mm -hmm. we're trying to <laughs> shout at each other as we play in order to coordinate. It's not working uh, because every player wants to be heard because they're playing for their friends in the audience. It's become com a complete cacophony. So we need uh, someone to coordinate to be, okay, guys, you're going to play a bit softer so we can hear the others and then we can do that. Today, that's the role of, you know, let's call it political organization. So that's, that does not mean like national parties. That does not mean, you know, United Nations. That means collective organization being like putting aside material interest to be, I, it doesn't matter I'm the CEO of a plane company and you're the CEO of a train company or the customers of a train company or whatever. What matters is, you know, our ability to have a sustainable, effective mobility. And we're aggregating ourselves as a kind of assembly to better coordinate the satisfaction of this need. Maybe that coordination, well, we know that coordination will involve a reduction of you know, flying and an increase of taking the train. And in order to be able to do this, we cannot do this in this kind of like a profit or perish competition where each company is only thinking about their material interest. So one, um, let's say, leverage point we call them in system thinking that I quite like is um, to legally take away the profit motive uh, during a, a period of transition. So, you know, the profit uh, motive is a legal status for a company. So it allows a private company to basically distribute their financial surplus to individuals. Uh, so it's, it's a, a constitutive uh, feature of a capitalist economy. But we could very well say, it was like, guys, okay, now we have a period of transition that will require to transform uh, sectors of the economy. There's going to be a lot of changes in the coming years. And right now, these kind of profit motive is acting as an incentive because, I mean, a company like Total is the greatest example. Just for decades, against the science, against everything, you know, telling us that we should stop the extraction of fossil fuel, these companies are continuing for one reason and one reason only, because it's lucrative. So right now, if you were to declare 
as a kind of chef d'orchestre of an economy to be for a certain period of time, if you're in the energy sector, you cannot distribute profits to individuals. You become basically a not-for-profit company where every financial surplus needs to be mobilized to that kind of ecological transition. Then I think you kind of um, unlock some power of this company instead of competing to make more euros, they're going to be working together in reducing total ecological ecological footprint, which is exactly what we want to see today. So I think, yeah, that's my my take on that. We need collective rules and individuals that are raising awareness about this, companies that are just creating their own rules because they want to inspire others to do so. They have a role to play. Patagonia, for example, we've seen, you know, mm-hmm. just setting a new example. But these are only good because they just uh, give, let's say, uh, more ammunitions to these kind of political organization that can be, okay, guys, look at what Patagonia did. What if within our sectors, we agree to all do this at the same time? What would be the impact? And then perhaps even at the level of a country, what if for a number of years, we were to agree on that rule? What would be the outcome? Yeah. And that's, I think it's a great transition to, have you read uh, that book, Utopia for Realist? Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to bring up one passage that's, which for me summarizes the, the mindset of everyone it would seem that we have arrived at the end of history with liberal democracy at the last stop and the free consumer at the terminus of our species. In less than 50 years, an idea once dismissed as radical and marginal has come to rule the world, neoliberalism, right? And so now people doubt that human ideas and beliefs are the main movers of of history. We don't think that this can change and um, it could easily take generations before new ideas prevail. For this very reason, we need thinkers who not only are patient, but also have the courage to be utopian. Is this what you are right now? Is this a movement of utopian uh, thinkers? And in which case, shouldn't we rename degrowth, which sounds, sounds pejorative, right, as a negative connotation into something that sexist feels more utopian, so that it could be enabled, trickled by the kind of organization that you spoke about? Or there's a plan that is available for when a catastrophe at the scale of COVID hits, right? Something where you lay it out on the table and when things, politicians are ready, they can pick up the plan and implement it. So there are already interesting terms like this that have been existing for a very long time. Uh, can be post-growth, can be the well-being economy, can be the perma-circular economy, can be the social and solidarity economy. I mean, the economy of permanence, uh, can be the common good economy from... You know, there's those terms. They've been existing for decades. I mean, the economy of permanence was developed, you know, in the 1940s in India. You know, so there's the social and solidarity economy exists in law in France has been, you know, it's one huge chunk of the French economy. Uh, the problem with this concept uh, right now is that focusing on the positive first might be a disadvantage in the same way that, you know, if you have an alcohol problem, you don't go to the sobriety club. You don't. You go to the alcoholic anonymous. Why? Because one first phase is to face the problem. Mm-hmm. Right now, our com- our our economies macroeconomically, they are drunk on energy and materials. We're using huge quantity of it, and we need to just face that fact. So before building a well-being economy, which should be the outcome, we need to realize we need to have the macroeconomic diet. In the same way that you know, if you have forty kilos to lose, your strategy. You, you have a diet to make. You're not going to call this, oh, yeah, it's a health and well-being protocol. It's like, no, you lose 40 kilos, that's your diet. Then you can be healthy and do a whole bunch of things. 
So degrowth as this kind of ugly word is so necessary because it confronts us with you know, the fact that we will have somehow to reduce production and consumption if we want to get back within planetary boundaries. But it, it, it seems like there's so much momentum. There's just so much inertia in the current movement that no one wants to take responsibility. So will it take a black swan c- catastrophe? You know, you probably read Ministry for the Future. He talks about that wet bulb 35 event killing 20 million Indians. And then, bam, that is a COVID scale event that changes humanity and the geopolitical arena forever. This is what it's going to take. The problem is, so our system, if we look at the private sector, I think it's fair to assume that the private sector is governed and controlled by a minority of economic elites. This is not an ideological statement. This is a fact. These elites, by the mere fact of them being at the top of the distribution of wealth, they are very far away from any of you know, ecological catastrophe. So if it were on, you know, if our system was controlled by the most vulnerable that have already seen their land being flooded or desertified, that are, you know, seeing their means of livelihood disappear from one day to another, you know, these people, they would have already taken the decisions being like, oh, wow, you know, this is so urgent. But right now we have this dichotomy. And, you know, if you want to put this in numbers, like concerning climate change, like, the, the 10% richest individuals on earth, so that 800 million people, mm-hmm. they own 76% of world wealth, but they only will bear 3% of the cost of climate change. If you take the 4 billion poorest people on earth, that's the opposite. So they're owning 2% of world wealth, but they will bear 75% of the cost of global warming. So if we're waiting for a catastrophe that will affect the economic elites, we're going to be waiting a very long time because by definition, being an elite today means that you can use your purchasing power to protect yourself against catastrophes. So you're literally shielded from any possible catastrophe. So I think right now to make a decision rather than waiting for this kind of like the enlightenment of the elites, which honestly, I mean, Anyone trained in basic social science uh, can see that this is just never going to be happening. We should be investing our hopes in a democratization of that decision making to be like, what kind of decision would we have been making in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s and today if when we decide whether to build a highway or not, we have a true democratic protocol of decision-making and we have a true representation of indicators of social well-being and sustainability and only financial indicators. If we had this, then, you know, the A69 in France, for example, would have been considered for like 10 minutes and then abandoned straight away. And now we see the fact that, you know, this very small project in one of the richest countries in the world is just not being given up. It's showing that it is the structure of decision-making that is locking us into unsustainability and not a matter of knowledge or enlightenment of values or anything like that. So you're one of the top uh, leading voices on this. Does that mean that you're embracing a bit of a political game or is this uh, what's the long game for you to enter the, the political arena forced by the circumstances? Or, and are you calling out most people, thinkers, to get one, to, one foot in this political scene? I'm a scientist, so my main task right now is to answer research questions, to better understand the problem and to better understand the potential of solutions. And many other scientists, I'm getting into a state of desperation because I'm like, what's Mm -hmm. the point of doing research if literally anyone in society is not acting rationally on the knowledge we've discovered? So 
more and more I understand why you know some of my colleague scientists uh, go and you know go and block roads and chain themselves to uh, kind of refineries and, and stuff like this because I mean there is no what else would you do we've done it we've produced we've like the IPCC is the largest human enterprise in the history of our species it's the largest collective project and we've generated we've generated you know th- th- this is an outstanding outcome and we've understood like so much about the problem we didn't understand and we've explored so many of these solutions and then we've showed that to the elites, public and private, and they're like, nah, yeah, fuck mm-hmm. that. So what's the point? Are we are we supposed to go back to our offices and spend another eight years writing a new global assessment report that will be ignored just like the six previous were? Or do we need to find other strategies? So I think we need to find other strategies does not mean that it becomes necessarily a political game in the very like in the narrow understanding of like I'm going to start my party and try to create a political no, but it might mean that uh, I'm I, I will have to work more directly with people that have been in denial of that scientific knowledge to better understand why is that an understanding problem or is that just a conflict of interest like as we've seen in the case of Total. It's not like they don't understand the problem. I'm sure even their internal scientists, they pay an expert, they understand it very well. It's just that the way the company is structured and financed and operates, then there's it cannot accept that scientific result because that will cancel its very raison d'être. So I do understand why there is so much cognitive Dyson. And so right now for me as a kind of early career scholar, I'm, I'm trying to spend more time interacting with these actors to better understand why they're not taking stock of, of that existing knowledge. But right. th- that does not mean I'm losing my title of a, a, a scientist because I'm only speaking to better explain the knowledge that we have and also the uncertainties. Science is not perfect. There are many things we don't know. And so I'm also here to respect the, to represent the humility of, of what we've tried and the things we know and the things we don't know. And also, and that's another one of my, of my hat, to temper the optimism of certain mm. private and public decision makers that you know feel the freedom to invent some kind of narratives and run for it, which is something we we tend to give a lot. You know, it can be an individual creating their own fast work, you know, burnout, Elon Musk kind of you know kind of work culture, and that become very powerful. And then you will have psychologists and sociologists being like, uh, "Guys, this is a bit of a romanticized version of that. If you do it, most likely you will get dumped by your partner." Your kids will hate you and you will get burnout, psychological issues, and you will stay, you know, in a depressive state in your bed. The reality <laughs> is that work life, what we understand from studying people that work and working hours, that work life balance is absolutely necessary. So in the same way, when someone comes up with a narrative of being like super techno optimist, carbon removal, kind of lassoing asteroids from the universe in order to just harvest their rare metals. I'm like, whoa, 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 calm down, guys. This is not Hollywood. This is not science fiction. There are actually scientists working on that. And they're telling us that what you're proposing is utopian this time in the negative sense of the term. Like It's, it's like theoretically impossible. Uh, so um, I'd like to to, uh, to hear your counterpoint. I also, you know, follow many voices like this, and I've, I've, I've you know, come to to like uh, John Mark Jankovici's, you know, point of view and his organization, the Shift, that says that the they're laying out a plan for when politics are ready. So there's a notion of timing in here. It's not about just put, issuing out, you know, IPCC report or this kind of uh, body of work. It is let's put it out until th- timing is right. 
and then the catastrophe or any kind of event or a series of event will render that you know prone to 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 instigate a change do, do you feel it's hard not to lose hope right and I, would, I wanted to get personal maybe just for a minute and and how do you deal with this stuff when you kind of pushing out the body of work and then you realize there's just no echo in any of that stuff maybe it makes views and it excites people but it's a little bubble of people that are Thinking the same way, um, do you think it's it's all a matter of timing? It might be next year, it might be in five years or ten. I'm lucky because first I'm young, so I've, I've I've been doing this for a few years, and my work has been relatively successful. So basically, in the same way that when a company is very lucrative, you know, you get rich, and that's society telling you you've done a good job. Mm-hmm. If you're a scientist and your work gets cited a lot, then you get rewarded with prestige, and so you feel that, that helps you to keep going. You're like, okay, what I'm doing matters. So I'm, I'm part of this uh, very few privileged people that have access to the media and, and book writing and stuff like this. So that gives me energy. I don't know how people like Dennis Meadows, for example, one of the authors of, of the Meadows Report in 1972, you know, how they can continue for 50 years, you know, to mm-hmm. repeat the same message, even though every year people do the opposite of what they say and the situation get worse and they'd be like, told you so. It's like, it's been... 50 years if I told you so. So I can understand that these people after a while, they're like, you know what? Just go fuck yourself. Just burn yourself on that planet and then try to eat the money you've created. Good luck with that. I'm packed. And even after a few years, I would have already done those. So if the entirety of the planet was only constituted of these 800 million people and I was, you know, an extraterrestrial scientist coming and just advising earth and these people were just like i'm like okay guys so you're cooking yourself to death right that's what you're doing by degrading the ecosystem without which you cannot survive and you're doing that just to create some kind of points you've yourself created in some kind of mad giant monopoly game so that's how stupid you're and if they were like yeah we don't care you know what that's human nature I like, okay fine i'm gonna go back to my planet you guys do that and we'll probably reuse your planet in a few thousand years when your species will have disappeared. The problem is we cannot do this because we are on a planet where, again, the decisions Part of these of species. <laughs> 10% elites is you know, making life impossible for the, the, the 90% others. So it's becoming like a, an ethical catastrophe. And I feel like as a scientist, like it, it is my responsibility to try these, to, to solve these issues. So yeah, that's also not giving you energy it's giving you purpose like you cannot give up in the same way that you know we're humans we have empathy we have sympathy we just i cannot i, I cannot just uh, be happy just uh, surfing and and playing the drum at my place knowing that some people in some part of the world won't have access to you know something as basic as just clean water or education or uh, will have to just move out from a place they've been living for generations just because, you know, a sea level rise or desertification or stuff like this. Right. And so what would be your final advice for the thousands of people listening that want to play a role in, in all this, right? They're awakened. They realize the complexity of all this and they want a role to play. So most of the people listening, uh, how can they play an impactful role? Uh, today, they think that joining a climate tech VC or startups is the way to go. What would you tell them? So I, I'll come back to the matrix i mean we all remember the scene where morpheus is offering you know blue pill red pill to to neo and for me that's really how i lived it i think once you read more about this and you reach a basic awareness of how the system function and you know 
how the system is, is basically systematically generating that problem, then you've red pilled yourself. It means like you cannot go back. Like it's, you cannot go back and just work for a, a huge for-profit corporation, just, you know, profiting out of extracting, you know, fossil fuels. You cannot do this anymore. So you have to ask yourself, okay, how do I act so that I don't send my energy, so my hours, my skills, I don't send that to basically the status quo. So this kind of the system running, but I actually invest that in the initiatives. And there are many, they are building a new system. So not in the initiatives that are just working and actually slowing down these existing systems and the other one, they're just inventing a new system entirely. Uh, and I get contacted by a lot of people that have, you know, transitioned. It's like, I cannot work in my current jobs anymore and I need to find something else. So I think it's a very empowering move uh, to to decide to be like, I won't be giving my hours to this mm-hmm. kind of outdated capitalist system. And when I was referring to the Sikh in France, so these kind of like, you know, post-capitalist cooperatives and the way that they're booming, uh, they're just, you know, being joined by all these uh dissatisfied engineers and financiers and and lawyers that used to work for these kind of big corporations and they are now massively uh, shifting to this uh, new occupations even though that happens at a lost in in income so that's very important to recognize like macroeconomically this transition to this kind of like well-being intense and sustainable activities they will never be more lucrative than the old ones but again, as I said, you know, it, it can be sweeter, both macroeconomically and also in terms of purpose, because people, they do, they have burnout, even though because they, they don't work too much, just because they work in an occupation that goes so much against their values, you know, that they, they cannot survive it psychologically. So I guess my message to you guys is one of, of what Cornelius Castoriadis, one of the philosophers behind the idea of degrowth is, 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 is calling like radical autonomy. To be like, right now, we need this kind of outburst of critical thinking to have the system as a whole, to see it from the outside and to be like, I want to be a leverage point in, you know, helping us to transition to this post-growth, post-capitalist, steady-state, well-being economy. And each in your sector, each with your specific set of skills, that's my Liam Neeson quote of the day, you can contribute to that transition. It's just a matter of finding, you know, the leverage point where you can actually be the most effective in doing that. And then I'm afraid that, you know, no one else can find that spot for you, but you can get in touch with other people in your sector, in your trade, in your location that I've been doing and thinking about that transition. And again, that's where we get from radical autonomy at the individual level to this kind of political organization. So collectively trying to put our energies together to create synergies for change. Wow. Thanks so much, Timothy, for this terrific chat. Continue shaking things up, being yourself, confronting the BS <laughs> all around you. And hopefully we will celebrate in a few decades, uh, you know, when this Ooh, is all set and done. I, I hope before that, but yeah, thanks for the invite. And thanks to you all for listening in. If you haven't already, sign up for my weekly newsletter. Along with receiving updates about each new episode, you will also get one actionable insight every Saturday to boost your career, fund, or startup. My newsletter is value-packed, authentic, and full of unique insights. This newsletter is also the best way to join our growing community of climate investors. We found that building a community is probably the ultimate force multiplier, and it gives us the momentum we need to create profound change. Let's share and collaborate. I'm just here to empower you to get started and set you on a path to success. 
so our collective ideas can flourish and expand. Come join us to drive huge impacts.